90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Just sitting at home like the rest of the world. Yep. (laughs) I mean, we don't have anything to talk about in terms of where we traveled, how you got stuck on airplanes. Yeah, because none of it's happening. Pretty much Mm -hmm. everything travel-wise that was on my docket uh, pretty much through June has been canceled. And I had one person email about canceling a July event already. Oh, yeah. Um, I think we're canceling field camp. So uh, it is... It is interesting. It's an interesting time. Very unprecedented. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, Mm -hmm. Though, I don't know if you saw watching uh, the different social medias, but I was trying to gauge the interest. And uh, we'd been developing a learn how to program Arduino class. Right. And since we're obviously not going to be able to do that in person anytime soon, Mm -hmm. uh, we've been gauging the interest in doing it as a remote class, either with like YouTube videos and then like Zoom office hours or something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, are you going to learn to program Arduino? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah? I have to learn how to use Zoom first, but yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's going uh, to be fun if, if we get enough people that want to do it. I mean, I think we're going to say no more than 10 for the first run. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, no, part- I think this is great. Well, partially because I don't want to get too overwhelmed with helping people yes. on the first go through. Uh-huh. And also because I don't think I can get more than 10 sets of parts for everybody right now. Uh, At least I in gotcha. a reasonable time frame. I've I've been trying to order some things uh, for work and yeah, those times keep slipping. We're we're pushing over a month on parts now. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. That, but um, uh, I think it's it's, it's going to be a little crazy. It is. Um, I think this is a great idea though, because I feel like, I mean, even though this is absolutely terrible, you know, nobody wants this to be happening right now. It is a time where it's like you can stop and figure out what's important, and then also, you know, it's a time to like take a breath and maybe be able to do this kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's if there is an upside, I guess that's it. I mean, my kids will tell you the upside is that school is canceled forever, but. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, well, we've been using it to, in addition to working on, you know, like developing this course and that kind of thing, uh, my wife and I have been building a giant Lego Saturn V. <laughs> uh, what is it? Upgoer, Upgoer 5? Uh, Upgoer 5. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so tonight we are on step 244. Oh my gosh. It's about a 2,000-piece kit. Let's hope that on step five, you didn't mess something up. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we did have one. We're on the third stage, and the third <gasps> stage is all in pieces again because oh. something went terribly wrong, and we're not sure where. That's probably your metric to English conversion. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Too soon. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Um, So we've had time to sit back and uh, go back to basics, really, right? Um, I thought maybe that's what we should do this week with the show. Yeah, so you suggested doing a second installment of Geology ABCs. I love it so much. (laughs) I do, too, because I've just got to say, when I saw what letters you stuck me with, I said, oh, man, I got the worst set. But then I came up with the best words. <laughs> I'm I am proud of some of these words. Oh man, it's really good. Um, I like how we've sort of like dovetailed them all together too. This is this is nice. It's a it's yeah. a nice nice set. Um, I don't know if we're gonna make it through the whole alphabet in one go though. I don't know if we will either. So we'll <laughs> see how far we get. We might have to uh, to split this up into two shows though. Yeah, I think so. Because some of these, I think we're gonna talk about them a while. Um. Yes. <laughs> I was just looking at some of the ones that you picked, and I was like, oh, I want to talk about that. So, right. yeah, correct. I think so. But without further ado, let's do our ABCs. All right. So you took A. So what is A? I did. 
A is this weird word, astroblem. <laughs> okay. Oh man. Okay. Um. So it's like a space pimple. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. It's on the Earth, though. <laughs> so I love this because the word is from the Greek astron blemma, which means star wound. How cool is that? <laughs> Nice. Uh-huh. And so that's exactly what it is. It's basically the ring structure left behind by an impact crater. Okay. So the ring structure within the crater? No, no, no. The whole ring structure or the, any circular scar. So I guess it could be the ring structure in the middle or it's the actual outline of the crater. Uh, okay. Yeah. Either one, really. Mm-hmm. So it sort I of is it. a space pimple. It is a space pimple or a star wound. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so you used to, just like the word cryptovolcanic explosion, which, or crypto explosion structure or cryptovolcanic explosion structure. I've, hold, I've heard all of these. I feel like astroblem is an older term and it's like, okay, here's this thing. It looks like an impact crater. Instead of just calling it an impact crater, we're going to call it this astroblem question mark <laughs> right it's a good way not to get grilled by reviewer number three yes exactly so people called them crypto volcanic structures because they were ring-like they had evidence of explosion but not always necessarily volcanic rocks <laughs> so that's the crypto part of the crypto volcanic structures and okay, a lot of the yeah. yeah and a lot of the impact craters i worked on well a lot of the impact craters everywhere somebody worked on them back in the 30s 40s 60s and then that's it so while there are a lot of scientists there's still a billion unanswered questions and not everyone revisits stuff right um and right. so a lot of these things have been called and are still called in the literature crypto volcanic structures or astroblims just because you don't have see our you know five episodes we did on <laughs> how do you know if you've got an impact crater because right. you, yeah because there's none of that you know there's not definite shocked quartz that's been indexed correctly along its you know preferential axes or you don't have shatter cones so that's what an astroblim is it's a space pimple or star wound however you want to call it <laughs> i like it yeah yeah it's really good Star Wounds episode four. <laughs> um, I'm gonna put that in the um, future, future episodes. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so actually related, as you said, some of these dovetailed really <laughs> nicely, uh, and I didn't even look at your letters <laughs> as oh, I was going. Nice. <laughs> uh, so I got B, and I picked bolide. I love it. You seriously didn't see Astro Bloom before this. I, I did love not. It. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I have to admit, that's... we don't always prepare the show really far ahead of time. Oh, um, <laughs> and so, you know, you said, okay, the notes are up. Go ahead and fill in your letters. And uh, so immediately after dinner, I opened it up and just typed like mad with uh, words that I could think of. So that was fun. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I almost hid mine from you just to see. But obviously, we've known each other too long. Um, so what's a bolide and how is it related to a star wound? <laughs> So a bolide is a a very bright meteor, uh, and it actually comes from uh, the Greek for missile. Oh, star wound by a missile. Okay. Or, well, like Italian it. via Latin from the Greek. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> which I thought it was fascinating that Greek said anything that even closely translated to missile. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's true. That is so. Funny. Um, anyway, it's, it's a really bright meteor. Uh, most of the time, they're ones that explode in the atmosphere. Okay, which happens uh, a lot here now. It does. Mm -hmm. And I did not know. Uh, so in geology, we, we'd say bolide for, you know, large impactor. Uh, but there is a definition of a bolide that it needs to reach an apparent magnitude of minus 14. I had no idea. Yes, and the super bolide is minus 17. Oh, I feel like I've been lying to a lot of my classes. I always thought a bolide was a meteor or a comet or anything in the atmosphere. 
And that's why you differentiate it between like meteor or bolide because you don't always know what caused your astroblem, right? You can't always find or you don't always find the impactor. So I thought bolide was like a catch-all term for something hit us to cause well, our star so it, wound. It sort of is. Yeah. So but... the USGS manual <laughs> Ah, okay. It says that a bolide is any large crater-forming impacting body whose origin and composition is unknown. Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> so you haven't been lying, but as in so many cases, we have come up with our own use of a word that another field perfectly innocently had. Okay. Whew. All right. Well, that makes me feel a lot better. Um, I'm definitely going to add this magnitude definition, though. Right? And so yeah. a minus 14, that's ridiculously bright, right? Twice it's, as bright as the full moon? Yeah, yeah. It's mm. it's bright. And then a minus 17 because logarithms, uh, you know, it's 100 times brighter. Yeah. That's when... Okay, so has that happened? A super uh, apparently. Bolide. That's great. Hmm. Oh, it says... Chelyabinsk. <laughs> oh, the Chelyabinsk. The, uh -huh. the one that broke all the glass windows. And Correct. Stuff in Russia. That one yeah. was a super bolide. Well, I guess so, because you could see it during the day. Right, yeah. You don't think about that since it was during the day. But yeah, that was, I mean, those dash cam photos are pretty bright. Yeah. Hmm. Well, how interesting. All right. So, what is C? I just like this word and this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I chose C for chalcedony. Which looks like chalcedony. Ah, uh, yes. If you try to Google it. <laughs> That's right. It does. Lots of people say chalcedony. It's chalcedony, I think. I don't know. I'm going to hold tight to that because I've never, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what's even more fun to say is chalcedony is the stuff that you get, man, it's really cool, blobby-looking stuff. You see it for sale all the time at rock shops. That'll, it's a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times it's what's inside geodes. And even more fun to say is that it's crypto-crystalline quartz, essentially. It's a cryptocurrency? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it's just super microscopic, um, crypto-crystalline, right? It's, it's right. micro-crystalline quartz. It forms through fluid flow. So that's why it's kind of blobby and pretty. Think about agate. It's kind of, it's the same thing, sort of. Okay. Um, so it's all really blobby. It fills in these voids in the rocks when you have silica-rich liquid that comes through it makes really cool layers too and so just a minor addition of some other cation in there is going to give you a really cool color so you can have most of it's like gray or whitish black but you can have some really neat pinks or blues or browns that come in and form with chalcedony but it's just like quartz it's sio2 um you can get some really wild, like, purples and reds that are really neat. Uh, one of my field areas, you can find this chalcedony all over the ground. It is awesome. It just looks like white Play-Doh. It's so cool. Yeah, I'm looking at some pictures of some really pretty aqua-colored chalcedony mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I Like, those little gemstones that are always polished that you can buy at virtually any museum. Like, a vast majority of those are chalcedony. Right. Yeah. And like I said, it's just fun to say. It's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So that brings us to D then. <laughs> and for D, <laughs> I picked one that we've talked about before. Oh. And that I remember a lecture from, uh, from grad school on, which is Deccan Traps. I don't even think we're going to make it to E because I have so much to say. But what do you have to say about these? <laughs> so Deccan traps are these big igneous bodies that were probably pretty important to what was going on with the global climate at the time. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's for uh, sure. <laughs> they are so-called because of their location. And 
They're mm-hmm. in this thing called the Deccan Plateau, which is in India. And I don't know if they are the largest volcanic emplacement on Earth, but if not, they've got to be in the top few. Um, yeah, they're in the, the Siberian traps, I think, um, are larger. I definitely have a slide on this. I'll, uh, I'll try to fact check you while you're talking. <laughs> right, and so these things were at the end of the Cretaceous period, so that's 66 plus or minus million years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, yes, just this massive, massive volcanic eruption. Uh, released a ton of volcanic gases, so you get all your sulfur dioxide and CO2 and all the water vapor coming out that's helping warm the climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, this played a major role in the uh, the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction. Yes. Um, what I think is really cool about these in general, so traps... Uh, I just figured this out when I was teaching Earth's Past Climate this last semester. It comes from a Swedish word that means stairs. Okay, yeah. And that's because these traps that we call them, so I said Siberian traps, you're talking about the Deccan traps. Um, There are these huge traps, which are just these big igneous bodies that kind of spew out their basalts, and they just make, they're called flood basalts, right? So they just make layer after layer and then when they start to erode, they make this stair-step type topography. If you've been in Idaho, you can see this in the Columbia River basalts, too. And it's just these nice stair steps that go on forever. But the Deccan traps or the Siberian traps are huge landscapes that are made of these. But that's why they're called traps. Nice. And these are originally about half the size of India. Yeah, real big. Just massive, millions and millions of square kilometers. Mm-hmm. Uh, 240, I think, million square right. kilometers. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and so what's cool about the Deccan traps, though, right? Was it What about their timing, right? They probably killed the dinosaurs, which you alluded to, right? But I right. think some people, this is so cool to me. It goes back to bolides. Um some people think that that eruption of this large igneous province, or limp, lips as we call them, so many, so much to say, um, might have been triggered by Chicxulub. Right, which is the giant North American, Central American impact event. Right. And so it's basically on the other side of the world. And basically that bolide punched us so hard it made us spew lava snot out the other side. <laughs> Is one theory. <laughs> it is. I think that theory is crazy. I love it so much. I think it's kind of been so the it's easy in geology to tell dating, relative dating. It's ridiculously hard to tell, you know, absolute dating. And so this is where these fights come in on like when exactly did the Deccan trap start and when exactly did Chicxulub hit? And could they be related or could they not be related at all because it's the combination of both of those things probably is what wiped out the dinosaurs for good they were on their way down anyway but this is probably what really killed them though okay so the the shred of plausibility for this theory yeah (laughs) is that chicxulub and the deccan traps are basically antipodes yes Uh uh-huh yeah like exact antipodes so that's interesting Uh uh-huh I think the most recent work has proved this wrong, that the ages are not coincidental. But I'm still going to hold on to it. But we're also talking very recent. Like, the, the the original proposition of this was mid-2010s? Yeah. 14, 15, somewhere in there. It's, it's recent. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah. I, I, I think it's so cool. <laughs> All right, so uh, you... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I could keep going. I'm actually lecturing about them next week online, so... <laughs> yeah, well, so you, your next one is uh, leading into some things that I have later in the list. Yeah, so. exactly. I put this one on sort of for you, but also it's my favorite E-word, period, and that is Esker. <laughs> right, and we've talked a lot about these when we had Dr. Kai Riverman on the show. 
<laughs> right, exactly. These weird inverse rivers, because <laughs> that's how I see them, um, that are created by glacial processes, which you actually explain this much better than I do. So I'm going to let you explain my E word. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah, so pretty much you're getting uh, erosion under the glacier from you've got this pressurized water flow. And then we are filling it in. And we've talked a lot about it on some of the other shows. So I don't want to go too yeah. deep into the detail there. Yes, correct. Um, but uh, as you're filling it in and the glacier goes away, I mean, that's what it looks like. It looks like an inverse river. And what I mean by that is like it's a positive topographic feature that's just filled with like a weirdly sorted wad of river sediment right yeah and yeah, it just pretty much and it looks just like a river because it's following that path that that water took underneath the glacier so it's this sinuous little hill and you can buy esker water on amazon <laughs> Yes, I remember talking about that. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's kind of cool because I don't think we've mentioned this, but the the way the esker moves is really determined by water pressure gradients. It's like the way a river moves is determined by topographic gradients, which mm. translate to gravitational potential, which translates to water pressure. Uh, these are purely water pressure gradients that drive this. So you can learn a lot about uh, the subglacial environment. Wow. By, that's the, re- by the shape and striations of these. That's really weird. And you can image them under current glaciers right sure yeah yeah okay well you can at least image you know where they're gonna be (laughs) but you can also go you know drive across ohio yeah i've never seen one that i've known of i'm i'm sure you've driven past them i'm Um, i'm sure i probably have too one of my favorite (laughs) descriptions of these though Mm -hmm. and uh I remember seeing this one of the last times I was reading some literature was uh, a description only a geomorphologist can love (laughs) that these are fluvioglacial features. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) Um, Yeah, those are fantastic. They're great aquifers, which we've talked about aquifers on here too. Um, Look up pictures of them. They're super weird. Right. Which brings us to F. Right. And I picked one that I'm going to let you talk about now, <laughs> which is fracture toughness. Uh, um, so G is mine. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what this means. This sounds so made up, too. I mean, this is, is it like, okay, let me guess, because I have no idea. Fracture toughness, how hard it is to actually refracture a fracture less complicated oh okay well okay so (laughs) you have a piece of metal and a piece of um porcelain these don't sound very geological but okay well bear with me you have a piece of metal a piece of porcelain Mm -hmm. and uh you nick the edge of each one of them okay what's gonna happen Oh, the porcelain will shatter and have lots of fractures versus the metal? Yeah, what's the metal going to do? Bend? Or nothing. Or that, yeah. Okay. So the the fracture fracture. toughness, (laughs) it it describes, so when you get a crack in a material, Mm -hmm. you get a stress concentration at the tip of the crack. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of fun ways that we can describe stress intensities and, yeah, it's cool. Yes. Um, but there are certain things that have to happen for that crack to propagate. Otherwise, it just cracks and stops. But you can get unstable crack propagation, where if you crack the material, the crack's just going to run across the whole thing and you're done. Mm-hmm. Think yeah. about a windshield. Yeah, or any coffee cup I've dropped, yeah. <laughs> or any coffee cup. Uh, versus if you've got a piece of aluminum and you somehow produce a fracture in it, it's not as prone to run. Okay. Yeah. So the fracture toughness describes sort of that stress intensity factor, how that stress concentrates around the tip of a crack and how the propagation of that crack is going to behave. So is what is it 
how do you quantify fracture toughness? So <laughs> fracture toughness is in the very intuitive units of <laughs> megapascal root meters. Yes, I knew it'd be something weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love me a good root meter. <laughs> right. So it's not a super intuitive unit to think about. Mm, um, yeah. But I can tell you, so you're looking roughly at things that go hey, from maybe 100 to 0.1 for most okay. materials. Higher numbers or higher fracture toughness are things that are less likely to have cracks propagate. Um, okay. So metals, most you know, steels, aluminums, that kind of thing are 20, 30, 40, 50, somewhere in there. Uh, titanium's higher than that. Like you don't want the titanium on your plane to have a fracture that runs because that's how uh. you get, uh, oh, I don't remember the plane, the one that had the, the square windows and oh. you got... Mm-hmm. cracks at the corners right yeah um versus things like your porcelain uh it's got a fracture toughness of like three. Oh. concrete okay. has a fracture toughness of around one so you know you get all those oh. concrete cracks in your floor and they just keep going mm, okay yeah so it describes how the stress concentrates around the tip of a fracture and how that affects the fracture's propagation now this is important because earthquakes are fractures and we need to know in what materials that fracture is going to be unstable and keep running and what materials are going to tend to arrest that fracture. I've, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. So, um, where do you, yeah, where do you stop shaking? I feel like we talked about this in the Fun Paper Friday that we had on avalanches. We might have. I feel like there was something that was like this. In that, because you talk, you have to talk about how stuff propagates through the the snowbank or something. So, hmm, and there's a bunch of other cool crack propagation ways. Like you can get something called stress corrosion cracking. Um, that sounds like, like you, a material science word. It is, but like if you've got a material that is um, oxidizing or corroding, or in you, know, you you put a piece of aluminum in a acid environment or something. Uh, you can get cracks that grow that way. Uh, there's fatigue growth. There's uh, micas do this really weird creep fracture mechanism. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised uh, you could fracture them at all. <laughs> yeah. So it is important geologically. It's important engineering-wise. Um, and it's just kind of a cool thing to to know. You know, you can say, well, you know, your, your concrete cracked because it's it's only got a fracture toughness of about one megapascal root meter <laughs> everybody be like mm, yep <laughs> huh interesting okay. yeah so fracture toughness i feel like there's a lot of theses written about fracture toughness Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. okay now all right so what's g <laughs> I want you to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> this is the whole reason I wanted to do geology ABCs again because I heard this and I didn't know what it was and I felt embarrassed. I didn't know what this was, but it's a guillo. A guillo. Okay, so uh, this is G U Y O T. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yep. Or guyot. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a seamount with a flat top. I'm just going to hmm. leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So how do you get a seamount with a flat top? I don't know, man. You tell me. <laughs> Aliens? <laughs> so seamount, which is later, probably next week on the show. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> so it, it's a a mountain on the floor of the ocean. So it's probably a volcano, right? But right. this one is one with a flat top. A seamount with a flat top. There's some really cool pictures. It's called, it's also known as a table mount. That makes sense. (laughs) But we call it a guillot instead, right? Um, Of course we do. uh, Exactly. The top is no more than 200 meters below the surface of the sea. So it's getting up there pretty high. Um, And it says the diameters of some of these can exceed 10 kilometers. Gee. I know. So erosion by waves. So I guess that's why you'd have to be... 
you're closer than 200 meters from the sea surface because you can't be below wave base or else you'd be a pointy mountain. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't that weird? I learned a new word today for sure. Yes. Gio. <laughs> I love it. That's great. This is like, yeah, I'm real excited that I looked up how to pronounce that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and these seamounts are weird things, right? But a, one that's a flat top is even stranger. Because like I said, they're usually volcanoes. Right. They are and volcanoes. In my field, we consider seamounts like asperities that get subducted and cause things to stick and get bumpy (laughs) and build up stress and produce massive (laughs) earthquakes so geos are really earth pimples ah i see what you did there yes they are (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) actually probably seamounts more but you know right geo seamount whatever what's the difference (laughs) (laughs) i don't know some people get salty when you talk about it oh yes (laughs) You're welcome. <laughs> so that brings us to H, which I had for Halite. <laughs> Clearly you did this after dinner. <laughs> I did. <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. So Halite is one I, I've really wanted to read the book and just have not had the time yet. Uh, salt. It's been recommended to me by multiple geologist friends. I've never about, heard of this. It is a whole book about how salt has deeply influenced human culture and evolution. Salt, a world history. Yep. Uh, this looks amazing. Hmm. So it's high on my list. Uh, just a long list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, but this looks great. I highly encourage you, if you are in the neighborhood and are able to travel sometime in the future when you're hearing this, uh, to go check out the Kansas Underground Salt Museum. I have never been... It's amazing. We need to do a field trip. Oh, where's it at? Uh, it's a little ways out of Wichita. I want to say okay. it's around Hutchison. I figured it was close to somewhere I'd been, and I haven't been, and yeah, should totally go. It is worth the trip. Um, you could stop by Big Brutus on the way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Have you been to Big Brutus? I've been by. Okay. <laughs> So Big Brutus is a big uh, mining shovel mm-hmm. that's a museum now. But anyway, so the Kansas Underground Salt Museum, you go down uh, and you're in a salt mine and they do all kinds of cool things with salt mines like movie studios store original film reels there because it's very well controlled and low humidity and safe. So they um, don't explode. Right. And they also, of course, mine this for mostly winter road salts. Mm-hmm. So it's an active mine. You get to drive around in it, um, walk around in it. They've got a lot of mining, old mining equipment on display. I just think it's really cool. I think salt was one of the reasons that I became a geologist. Um, Not because I love it, but because of that thing where they're like, look, it's a cube. And if you hit it, it's more cubes. And if you hit it again, it's more cubes. And that kind of blew my mind. I was like, how is it still a cube? It's a powder, right? Oh, no, the powder's cubes, too. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I definitely remember that from, I don't know, middle school. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. 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 So there you go. Big fan. (laughs) So, Halite. And then, you know, if if we ever get past this this virus thing, we will have to organize a field trip. Uh, Absolutely. We should film it and everything it could be our first and only uh, youtube foray right <laughs> right people i won't speak for you but i have a face for radio so <laughs> yes exactly that's why i'm here that's why i used to tell people i played saxophone because i can't sing <laughs> so you know um yeah great salt. all right so salt hey light what about i So this word is a little bit of an inside joke for anyone that's ever taught field camp with me. And it is the word indurated. Go on. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we have a sign that has Mandy Patinkin from 
the Princess Bride, and it says, Indurated. I don't think that means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> because in some, and this is our own fault, but it's also super funny. So, induration, right? It's a measure of how hard something is. Not in a, not in a quantitative Mohs sort of way. <laughs> but basically, like, is something well indurated or poorly indurated? What would it fracture toughness be, right? If I hit it, is it going to bend or is it going to break? So which one of those would be poorly indurated? So poorly indurated is the bendy ones, right? So like mud is not even indurated, right? Or a, you know, floppy clay stone is not well indurated, but like a shale. So something that's really hard, been baked, pretty well indurated. Okay. A large, massive limestone extremely well indurated okay Mm -hmm. there you go so a qualitative if you will measure of hardness which i think is where we get into trouble (laughs) and it's an inside joke because we have our students do which doesn't matter not going to do it this year a massive um strat column so they have to i mean this is their works of art when they're done they're truly works of art even the bad ones <laughs> they right. spend it's been so many man hours on this and it's so wonderful but then they're doing these descriptions and they all glom onto this word indurated we give them this big packet and it's like this is how you do geology and in there is the word indurated and it says you should describe the rock's induration so every single rock <laughs> gets well poor or moderate <laughs> attached onto it <laughs> <laughs> with the word indurated and it's like i guess it's kind of a fancy word and so they use it over and over and over again <laughs> and it's just it's very funny because it's not something like as a geologist if you and i were standing out there if you were a geologist <laughs> you know it's not the first thing i would say about a rock right <laughs> No, but in it, fact, it's the last thing I would say. I would take it back to the lab and test it. But uh, Exactly, because you want an actual number on that, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's like when pretty... people say the grain size is small. You just want to smack yes. them. Oh, my god! Small grain. Exactly. <laughs> or they say sand, and it's like sand is an actual size, people. It's not. There's a number that goes with that word. <laughs> but that's, I digress. Okay. Right. Let's hear your $64,000 word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so sorry for the pronunciation. I've heard this said so many ways at so many conferences. Ah. Um, I'm going to go with yakalump. (laughs) Bless you. (laughs) (laughs) I have zero idea what this is. Okay, so this is Icelandic, obviously, because it's got, you know, the the dots, the umlaut. Um, Yes, I see those. Yep. Yep, uh, and translated, it is glacial run. Okay, so is it glacial movement or what? Uh, yes, yeah, sort of. So the formal what it is is a sudden outburst flood from a glacier. <gasps> Ooh, well, this sounds fun. How do I not talk about this word in uh, <laughs> catastrophic sedimentation? Well, I will now, okay. Yeah, so you can get like some sort of geothermal heating, uh, or some volcanic subglacial activity. Uh, mm. Yeah, or you can just happen to hit the pressure melting point somewhere and boof. Um, but it's when you release a lot of water from underneath the glacier and you get basically a, a river flowing out and this big reservoir forming at the bottom. That is exciting. Uh, mm. And what's really cool... <laughs> is since they are, you know, the water system under the glacier is kind of sealed a lot of the time. Okay. And it's got the pressure generated by the whole glacier sitting on it because the glacier is really close to hydrostatic balance, as we've talked about before on the show, Mm -hmm. uh, where it's almost floated by the water pressure. Mm -hmm. These aren't just like flows of water. These are pressurized discharges. So it's like um, a fire hydrant. Yeah. (laughs) And they are sometimes associated with episodes of glacial movement as well. Okay. Wow. Um, Hmm. 
This is interesting. So I never think about, I think about rivers underneath lakes or underneath glaciers, but I don't think about ice-dammed lakes like within the glacier. Yeah. That's scary. <laughs> Absolutely. So would a yakulop, um, would that be like an ice-dammed lake too? Because you hear that a bunch, like out in front of the toe of the glacier. If if that was breached, if like the ice dam was breached, is that the same thing or no? I'm, I don't know. It's not from the glacier. Okay. So I'm going to say right. no. I would just call that a... Just a flood. A lake an burst. Ice, an, yeah, okay. An ice dam burst or something. Okay. Um, Man, so, so these are even scarier than that. Then. Yeah, and I have heard stories... Uh, of researchers trying to, you know, investigate thing X or Y under a glacier and puncturing into a pressured zone <gasps> and having some exciting times. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's cr- it's like a little whoopee cushion, right? If you just spew all its ice out, you can just like now you've just got this glacier sitting there, right? Without its sort But of also think f- about so you've got this thing that's sitting there and maybe it's moving. Right, and yeah. You, you pressurize and lift it up enough where you can get this outburst flood and then it's going to go oh and yes <laughs> really exa- ground exactly well i guess that's the that's why it's sounds like that when you say it <laughs> yeah. so <laughs> that's Yakaloom. weird oh okay that one's really good you probably won over geo with I, I was i was real excited when i saw that i did get jay um i guess you didn't have jay last time so you didn't uh, no didn't have the opportunity and i also love that you've heard this word said out loud several times because i have never well when you hang around with glaciologists you exactly hear lots of weird words. penn state there you go <laughs> <laughs> um well my k word is also water related and it's just karst Yay. Yeah. Carlsbad Caverns. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got, we've already talked about this on shows too, right? <laughs> um, so, karst topography is topography formed by the dissolution of some kind of limestone, usually by acidic groundwater. And then you get a hole, right? So, you can have a cave in a karst, or you can have all kinds of weird stuff like sinkholes. Those are karsts. All kind of junk that forming cave. That's all part of karst topography. And we've got a bunch of karst topography around here. Mm-hmm. Heck yeah, we do. Um, <laughs> especially in your neck of the woods. Um, yeah. So sinkholes, caves, you can all lump them under karst. There's a karst institute. Um, I got a t-shirt from them at this last GSA. It just says, got karst and i think it's really funny to wear <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's karst all right uh so that brings us to l i, I feel like you will be excited about this one. i am excited about this one. <laughs> and it is lacolith <laughs> that is an outrageously satisfying word to say lacolith <laughs> isn't it Yes, I love it, it. So what's a lacolith? How is it different from a regular pluton or, you know, all kinds of other things? Well, according to the internet, it is a <laughs> concordant pluton, though I've never heard that in my life. Oh, that's how I teach it, though. I don't say that word. I don't say that word. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So um, this is an intrusion, so a magma intrusion turning into, you know, those burnt rocks that you don't like to think about, <laughs> the, the igneous kind, um, that intrudes between layers of sedimentary rock, and it actually deforms the sediment above it, so you get some cool folding, one of my favorite things, and then this intrusion. So it's sort of like a dike, but it's not, you know, a dike just cross-cuts the layers. Um, this actually goes in between the layers and jacks them apart hydraulically. That's awesome. And uh, in your crypto vein earlier, <laughs> uh, if 
you intrude into something that is already a volcanic formation. So if you intrude into more uh, igneous rocks, Mm -hmm. then this makes a cryptodome. Because <laughs> it looks like a volcanic dome, but it's not really. It's just from a lacolith below. Oh my gosh, a crypto dome. I love it. But a lacolith has to be between sedimentary rock. Uh, okay, yeah, fair. Mm-hmm. But no, but I mean, but it can push up igneous rock, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah I guess igneous into an igneous is not really... Much. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. Then you've got a just a regular old pluton, right? And right. then a batholith. How's that different than a lacolith? What? <laughs> so this is one of my um, <laughs> this is one of my multiple choice questions, and I was <laughs> like, "What is a lacolith?" Or oh, 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 backolith. I think you said. Bacolith, and I was no, sorry, Bacolith. Sorry, Bacolith. What geology one hundred and one thing? But <laughs> you missed. Um, so I always put basilisk as one of the choices because I think it's funny, and every year somebody chooses it, and I never know if they did it on purpose to be funny or. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, are you saying depth and size? Yeah, I think that is it, right? That's what I would say. Is yes. Uh, a batholith is really deep. Mm-hmm. And it's really big. And yeah, like tens of square miles. Yeah, yeah. So size is, size is basically what, it, you know, what the answer is. So it's like, I just think it's funny. And I say basilisk a lot. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, lacoliths. Yeah, that's cool. Cryptodome. I feel like that's the place you go to to... I don't know when you put on your mad scientist gear. Like, going down to the cryptodome. Exactly. I'll be back in a minute, honey. I'm just gonna pick up some stuff from the cryptodome. I've never used that word in my life. Have you seen that word before? You did this? No. <laughs> I love it. It's real good, though. It is. All right. So bring us home with M. Ugh. All right. Um, M. I just love to say this too. Molybdenite. Yes. Um. So this actually goes with, well, sort of goes with uh, one of yours later on. So molybdenite, we, a lot of our field camp now that we have hired our geohydrologist that came from Leadville, he takes our students out. And this year they were supposed to go to a molybdenite mine. And that's real exciting, but it's just fun to say molybdenite. And miners call it, so it's made of molybdenum. It's a molybdenum disulfide, MOS. I'm going to keep saying molybdenum incorrectly because <laughs> it's fun. Um, so this thing is mined a lot, and miners call it Molly Be Damned. And I think that's really funny too. Hmm. All right. I don't know if you knew that. I did not. Yeah, so MOS2, um, mined for all kinds of stuff, right? Because isn't it, um, it looks like graphite, and I think that's what they use it for is lubrication too? Yes, so <laughs> uh, molybdenum disulfide grease or molly grease is used in a lot of mechanical things. We used it extensively in the lab uh, when we studied friction because if you take two pieces of steel and paint a coat of molly grease on them, a thin coat, and press them together with 25 tons of force, mm-hmm. you can trivially slide them. I mean, this has okay. a friction coefficient of like 0.02 or something ridiculous. Wow. wow. I mean, it's, it's almost frictionless. That's amazing. Hmm. I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, we always, you know, it, you always, we, we joked that it was like our our war paint we would you know put the black streaks <laughs> under your eyes in, in one entropy video we did that uh of course you did <laughs> yeah it, it's it's a really 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 slippery substance uh and it also is used when you're working with uh, and manufacturing semiconductors 
Mm. I'm assuming that's why it's mined mostly, right? I, I would assume so. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, I, the grease is extensively used in industry, but I would think semiconductors use the most of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, yeah. It's weird stuff. Well, okay. Maybe, I don't know. I think it was some of the earlier stuff that used it, but it has been used in semiconductor fab anyway. Oh, not so much anymore. I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, a lot the of molybdenite, a lot of their molybdenite mines are going under. So maybe not. So maybe. <laughs> but yeah. I think that is a good place to wrap it up because that's halfway through the alphabet. It is. This the. I would say it's the exciting half because both of our exciting words were in that half. But we shall. I, I'm pretty excited about some of mine in the next okay. section too. Well, well, we shall endeavor to not disappoint next week. <laughs> You won't believe the V word that I picked. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I, w- I don't believe it. Okay. Yeah. And and th- there's a pretty good one for P too. So That is true. And Y. Okay. Yeah. We'll have a good time next week. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but until then, it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Where did you find this? I mean, I know you know this, right? You get on there and you're like, what do you search? Do you search weird scientific papers? Do you write fun scientific papers? What do you do? I've never done fun scientific papers. And I I typed fun scientific papers 2020. And this was the one of the most cited scientific papers of this year, especially in Japan for some reason. Interesting. <laughs> and this has a very special meaning to me, but we'll get to that. Um, so this weird paper is Parrots Voluntarily Help Each Other to Obtain Food Rewards by Brooks and Von Bairn. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so a mutual friends of ours, um, Drs. Pistacco and Morrissey, had a zoo literally that's what they called it of animals and i used to take care of these animals this is how i made money as an undergraduate basically and they had a lot of large tropical birds and they always joke that they're going to you know die and give me these birds because they live till 130 or something and i hate them (laughs) (laughs) their birds are jerks (laughs) like (laughs) they have a huge blue macaw and they have this African gray parrot named Percy. <laughs> and Percy would get out of his cage and he'd fly around the house and he'd fly like they had like really high windows and he'd get up in those really high windows and he'd look at me and he would yell at me. The bird would say, Percy, get down from there. <laughs> <laughs> and I would chase him around the house with this broom trying to get him down and then I'd have to throw a towel over him because he'd bite me if I tried to pick him up. <laughs> and throw him back in his cage and then he'd say weird stuff to me when i came in like want to take a shower <laughs> Ooh, yeah super creepy so i have a soft spot and anger management issue with african <laughs> gray parents <laughs> and so i've already sent them this paper too by the way <laughs> um but this is about african grays actually being nice to each other Right, and macaws not. Exactly. That's the, See, that's the kicker, because they have this huge blue macaw, Freddy, who is the meanest bird ever. And this paper backs it up with science. So Percy was, he was an ornery cuss, as someone from, you know, our parents' generation would say. But he was cool and nice, and Freddy was always super mean. And now I have scientific backing to say this. And so this is from um, the the authors are from the Max Planck Institute, which I thought was very interesting um, in Spain and in Germany. And they work in the ornithology lab and they went and got these African gray parrots. And this experimental setup is fantastic. There's a video that goes along with this, but I love the diagram too in the paper. So yes. they get, yeah, this diagram is fantastic. This is, these are my kind of diagrams. So they basically have this plastic cage that's cut in two 
right? And the researcher sits like right in the middle of the plastic cage. One African gray parrot has basically, they're just little uh, washers. He's got this pile of little washers and he can't interact with the researcher. But on the other side of the partition between them, which is clear, they can see each other, is another African gray parrot that does have access to the researcher. But that parrot has to give the researcher one of these washers to receive a treat. Right. In this case, a piece of walnut, I think it was. Correct. Yeah. Little crushed up walnuts. So in order for the African gray with access to the researcher to get a treat, the other African gray has to give him a washer. And he does. It's like statistically ridiculously significant that that African gray figures that he gives his buddy the little washers and then the African gray gives the researcher the washer and he gets walnuts. Right. And I was a little, I I thought this was going to be like, and then he gives some of the walnuts back to the other bird, but no. (laughs) No, no, (laughs) no, it's nothing like that. <laughs> um so they say that so they address that in here though um but it is true that the one that gets the walnuts when they trade them places is also super helpful at giving the other african gray the washers and so they ran it you know to figure out all kinds of things so when one of them has washers and another neither of them have access to the researcher they don't pass the washers back and forth so they know what they're for, basically. Right. And when they just have the one bird blocked off with the washers and no bird in the other cage, they don't do anything with the washers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They also did where one bird had the washers and access to the researcher. So they obviously would give them to the researcher. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the other bird's blocked off. But what I really wish they would have done is so they have this figure, figure two, A, B, C, and D of the four different setups. Mm-hmm is one bird with washers, one bird with none, and both open to the researcher. Yeah. I don't know why they didn't do that. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Maybe they did, and it was confusing. Uh, Maybe. Um, I guess, because in that case, so in this one, you're like, oh, he's very helpful. Like, he's not getting any treats, yet he's still giving him washers. But if he has all of them, is it like... The chimpanzee experiments where, you know, if they give them some bananas, they share. But if they give them a horde of bananas, they don't share at all and will, like, kill each other. Is it something like that? I don't know. Um, Right. It's super cute, the video. (laughs) It is. They're very dexterous passing those washers. Uh, So these African greys, those are always the birds that you see that do all kinds of tricks. Like, they can ride little unicycles and do all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. And Percy could get his cage open with his tongue, so, you know. Birds are very weird. They're, they're dinosaurs, man. Yep. Yeah, they're super weird. But so they say they're ascribing this to, like, you know, they're just being friendly. The bird that's giving him the washers isn't getting any treats. He's just helping a buddy out. And right. I thought that was, yeah, and so that was kind of cool. Um, And I love it. <laughs> There's a whole heading right here. So they're saying, you know, recipients' behavior affects pro-social acts in African gray parrots. And they talk about how they flock and, like, why this would be useful. You know, why are they friendly to each other and helping each other out? And then the next heading says, blue-headed macaws do not provide help. <laughs> right. Uh, so they did not do this. Uh, not well, at all. <laughs> one thing I did think was interesting with the grays, though, before we got too far, was they uh, the familiarity of the grays with each other. And the uh, exaggeration, uh, the intensity of the, like, dancing of the one that wanted the washers. Oh. Mm-hmm. So if they knew each other and if the other was like, I really want this, I really want this, <laughs> that influenced how much of the time they would actually go to the effort to do it. That's, that's adorable. <laughs> yeah, that's real cute. This made me like like birds a lot more. Not blue macaws, obviously. Um but it was pretty statistically significant how it worked. It was. But so, you know, many of these fun papers would say, and, you know, here's the the application or the implications of this paper. Mm-hmm. And so here, you know, they're saying, well, th- this is the first time we've observed this kind of behavior. So 
the first proof of instrumental helping in a non-mammalian species. Right. Mm-hmm. I still don't understand. Who cares? The significance, yeah. It's so you feel bad eating chicken. And, you know, I'm sure there is, <laughs> but that's the one part of this paper that I really wish had been articulated a little more was okay so we've observed this thing for the first time and that's cool but why did we observe it which i mean this is in current biology this isn't an easy journal to get published in so you're right that is interesting that that's obviously this is very clear to ornithologists why this is important Right, and it's just one of those things where, you know, not being somebody in that field and looking in right. from the outside, you go, eh. But this is why we write good, broader impact sections. Ugh, and this is why you have abstracts like you have in, what is it? Is it the BMJ or JAMA, whatever ones that right. we read that have those great abstracts <laughs> that are broken down? That's what I wanted here. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. but uh, I definitely encourage you to go watch the video uh, it is, you know, you can social distance while doing it and watch a couple of other creatures be social. Exactly. Dancing to get his little washers, to get his to get his little nuts. It's adorable. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Not those blue macaws, though. They're all jerks. <laughs> right. Uh, well, if uh, you've got videos of creatures exchanging washers for toilet paper, or any other uh, similar social experiments. Uh, We would love to see that data. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Oh, please send us that show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter a lot more lately. (laughs) I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Together we are at don't panic geo. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com at don't panic geo there as well thank you for our supporters and maybe we'll spend some more time in the slack chat room so if you're bored come on over to the software underground on the don't panic channel and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science any opinions findings conclusions or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies